Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. SDG Talkers, welcome back. In this conversation, you're going to hear from Catherine Flowers, who spent 20 years working at the nexus of civic engagement, community development, equity, and climate advocacy. Catherine is the founder of Altruistic Endeavors, which is a disaster relief organization that responds to life's disasters. The connection in this conversation is a little bit spotty at times, but overall, you can hear everything. Catherine is going to give us an in-depth analysis of Houston and how Houston is a microcosm of the future world. Catherine is going to give us insights to how to actually develop and implement community projects through empathy and why it's important to have communication in a two-way street and you need to ultimately work to get to yes. And compromise isn't a bad thing. Sometimes it's great to meet in the middle and really meet people where they're at. Catherine will give us some insights into about why it's really important to understand all the externalities of a decision and paint that in regards to looking at the history of Houston and how some of these zoning rules over time have created inherent environmental injustice challenges in some of these cancer clusters. So again, remembering how Houston is a microcosm for the world, good case study for us all to understand. I know you're going to enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed creating it. Take care and keep on SDG talking. So what is it that makes Houston so unique and really just a, a microcosm of the entire world? That is such a great question. You know, when people think of Houston, they think of rodeos and cowboys and oil and gas, right? But the truth is, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Houston never had cowboys. And we are a huge metropolitan city, the fourth largest city in the nation. It's the third largest city in land mass. Supposedly after this election, I mean, after the census finally gets it together, Houston's going to be the third largest city people-wise, they're saying in the next 10 years. You know, we're going to have more than 20 million people come through the city. So that's amazing. We're a huge metropolitan area. But one thing that people or a thing that people traditionally don't know is that one out of three constituents that live here are foreign born. We have over 120 consulates. We are the most diverse city in the nation. So what that means is that, you know, we have this melting pot of thoughts and people and opportunities. And Houston is what the rest of the nation will look like 10 years from now. Dr. Stephen Kleinberg at Rice University puts out this report every year, and he's known for all of the statistics that he has about Houston. And it's true. Like, this is a fact. If it can't happen in Houston, can't happen anywhere else in the nation. And so making sure that we do testing and we create best practices, I feel like it's a obligation of everything that's going on here to make sure the rest of the nation can be successful in their endeavors. I like that. It's a microcosm and sort of insight to what the rest of the country is going to look like because more and more of the world is becoming a melting pot, whether some people like it or not. And but I do know with growth is comes opportunity, but also challenges. And and you mentioned in your opening statement that Houston, it is not just oil and gas, but there is a big side of the industry that has aspects of industrialization. What are some 
talk me through some of the the challenges of recent growth from some of the industrialization that's happened and and how has that led to some of the the challenges that are being faced today within some of the the port cities and some of the areas around some of the refineries and, and industrial activities going on. Another thing that we often take for granted is politics matter. In Houston, we're a very mayor-led city. So if the mayor doesn't approve it, it's not going to happen. Even though we have, I think, more than 20 city council people, it really comes down to the mayor. And so he's going to drive uh, that economic development, that growth. In the past, I've been very critical, and I've often said that Houston operates like the town of Houston, right? We love to say we're this oil and gas city, but we have NASA. Did you know that Houston has more restaurants per capita than anywhere else? So we're much more than industry in oil and gas. Uh, We have amazing sports teams. Again, the diversity means that we all have the most incredible cultural offerings. So it's so important to think of Houston holistically in regards to industry and transportation. We also have one of the largest highway systems which causes a problem environmentally because just within inside the loop, right? We have the 610 loop, the I-10 loop. Most people are familiar with all of the highway systems. And every year, more than 5,000 people die because of PM 2.5. PM 2.5 essentially is dust or it's that's created by vehicles and with the creek and with all that stuff coming together. And so even before COVID, we should have been wearing PM 2.5 masks because like most cities, the parks and schools are right on the edge of these highways. And so the environmental issues are impacting them even more because they're right there. Kids are playing outside. And again, all this heavy traffic right now, there's a huge issue because they're wanting to expand one of the highways. And they didn't talk to the community first, right? And so they're going to be displaced, displacing thousands of families and businesses to accommodate people, not even in the city. So yeah, we have a very interesting playing field here in Houston. So with this growth of the city, you talked about one of the largest highway systems and one of the externalities being this um, PM 2.5 that's created. It seems like anytime we're trying to grow and do something, there is an externality. But there's this balance of, well, economies have to grow and growing economies is good business, which means it's going to trickle down. But as you kind of mentioned there, that's not always the case because sometimes if you don't talk with a community, that's going to displace a family. It's going to displace a business. It's going to displace a school. How can you kind of shed light on maybe something that's the the challenge there, but how can we approach uh, sort of civic engagement where a community that's trying to grow and adapt in the 21st century can effectively work with the community and not just sort of have an authoritarian led, this is what's going to happen because it's good for business, but what can we do and what's, what are you doing to expand some of that dialogue to make it more of a two-way street to do what's best for the community at whole, not just for some lobbyist who's been promoting the implementation of another highway or another factory? So a lot of folks think of this as a foreign concept, but the truth is empathy. 
could be the single vehicle that will eliminate some of this angst when we're trying to do growth or when we're trying to make changes. Because the truth is, change can be great, right? Everyone could benefit from change. And growth, we can't get out of our comfort zone until we grow, until we do things differently, until we bring in new ideas. But we should lead with empathy. Empathy builds trust. Politicians and decision makers often make decisions without considering the folks who are going to be affected more. And so just taking the time to have those those conversations are so important. Another beautiful thing that Houston has to offer is we have something called super neighborhoods. And so there are more than 104 super neighborhoods and super neighborhoods are made of civic organizations and HOAs and schools and churches, all of the things that make community work. Even using that as a tool to get information out demonstrates empathy. So making that effort to communicate and to have transparency about projects can change the game. You know, instead of trying to do things in the dark and then having to waste money by stopping and starting all over because advocacy is at an all-time high. You know, more people are empowered to speak their truth and to get out there. And so why not meet them where they are and get their input right up front? Empathy builds trust and meeting them where they are. Yep. Those were, they couldn't agree more. And those are good North stars to live by when really looking at trying to take some new idea and implement it to the community and do it effectively. It seems like anytime you have someone who just says, this is the way it's going to be and not have a two-way dialogue, it leads to challenges. And I know, as you mentioned in Houston, being a melting pot of the world, especially of the United States, but particularly of the world, we're experiencing growth. And that's, that's coming back to, again, change from what the economic activities are bringing. But I know there, you touched on the challenges with PM25 and the dust creation vehicles, but tell me, I'd like to go a little bit more into some of the sort of what's happened in the past with particularly, I know there's a lot of talk within the refineries and chemical plants and some of these sewage facilities and hazardous waste sites. And of course, some of that is a necessary evil with our economy, but at the same time, the way that some of the, the regulations that have unfolded with maintaining or mitigating some of the runoff has been a challenge, but then also sort of who's been impacted in the way that it's been dealt with immediately or the long term has maybe not been something that people are talking about. But are you able to shed any light in terms of like what sort of happened throughout Houston's history and, and how has that negatively impacted some of the disadvantaged communities over time? Thank you for that question. That is one that I really want to answer. But before I answer that, I just want to also offer, because I spoke so passionately about empathy and transparency from electeds and the like, I also want to note for those who are listening we have to expect the same things from communities. Advocacy is at an all-time high. And so people have sometimes get these positions because they think it and makes it so. And so without having a framework of how politics works or how funding works or, or all of those things, sometimes we can lose sight of the bigger picture because we get stuck on a thing these people just want their feelings validated. 
right? They don't necessarily want to be right. They want to know that they're being heard. And so before I answer the next question, because that actually is important in the next question, I just wanted to note that, that communities also have a responsibility to be fair and just when they're advocating. It's a two-way street. Exactly. It has to be a two-way street in order for us to really get to yes. Because the truth is, in everything that we do, we can get to yes. People often think that you have to compromise, and when you compromise, somebody's losing. But that's not true. And some compromises that we absolutely have to make in Houston is considering people who are being impacted. So you talked about industry and growth and how that impacts our fence line communities. You know, it's a crazy thing. Houston Mm. has more chemical batch plants than any other Texas total, right? Concrete batch plants are huge in Houston because we're always building, we're always tearing stuff down. But these batch plants are typically in low to moderate income communities. In Houston, we have no zoning. So you can have a five-star neighborhood and around the corner, there's strip clubs and all kinds of seedy businesses. Or right next to an apartment complex, you can have a concrete batch plant. We know the community that lives there is going to be hurt, not only in the short term, but also long term if you continue to live there. We have a one community where it is now a cancer cluster, where generations of families who have lived there have more than one kind of cancer. Almost 100% of the community has cancer. You have children who have cancers 70 times the rate of their peers in other communities and around the nation. That's egregious. That's criminal, right? So again, the thoughtlessness of those who are making the decisions because profit is more important is unacceptable. And so thinking as we do planning, it's nothing. I mean, I've worked in government. I've worked on big projects. It's nothing to give consideration to the people who are being impacted and putting in those provisions to make sure that we at least know. But nobody wants to take responsibility. I mean, that's a hyperbole. Oftentimes, businesses and lawmakers and the like want to wash their hand of any accountability because they don't want to have to deal with the risks and what happens with those risks. So you talked about aspects of how people have put profit over people, which unfortunately we've seen time and time again throughout humanity. But what I found interesting is what you talked about, the lack of zoning and the kind of the need for provisions. Tying back to your statement earlier about how this trying to do advocacy and policy in the right way is a two-way street, but what's being done? Because those numbers you said of 70 times higher cancer rate than other parts of the city and this cancer cluster, it's like, that's not just by chance. Like there's something has happened that's causing that. So now what can be done? What is being done to put some of these provisions in place to sort of, to try and rectify the wrong and, and correct it moving forward? So leadership matters. And so one of the things that we've seen almost immediately is that folks who have held seats 
forever, right? They are lifelong politicians are now being voted out. We actually have a county judge. A lot of folks don't have counties and she's not necessarily a judge like the court, but that's just the title of the position. But she's not only the youngest elected official, she's also a Latina, never ran for office before. Her family was were immigrants from Colombia. And she beat out a longstanding Republican who thought he was never going anywhere. And so now you see folks using their power of voting to make changes in leadership so that some of the rights can be wrong. When she came into office, she immediately addressed environmental concerns by creating a climate action plan. She focused on climate action. She focused on justice for bail reform, education, all the things, all of the issues that immediately impact our hardest to serve communities when the prior administration never even considered it. So yeah, using our voice to make those kinds of changes speak values to the people who have taken those communities for granted for so long. So you mentioned how leadership matters, and that's very apparent from the top level. What about from the individual community leader level, but also even what would you say to a 13-year-old that's in middle school or a 17-year-old that's in high school? Like, What role do they play within in this type of story? And if anything, if you could speak to someone living in Houston or someone living in the West Coast or East Coast that wants to play a role within helping in some capacity? I'm so glad you asked that question. Gosh, you have great questions. <laughs> Why, thank but- you. I typically focus on young folks, you know, high school and under, because the truth is that's the only way we can make sustainable change. If they're not buying into it, as we, folks like me and you who are trying to create these legacies and make things better, if they're not adopting it, you know, it's out the window. So it is critical that we help build capacity in high school students and middle school students by providing them with the opportunity not only to serve, but to have a voice, to be able to be included. And everything that I do and I help to advocate for is always, I have this motto about bringing a chair to the table. And I'm reserving that chair for our young folks. Because the truth is, if you are not at the table, you're on the menu. And we need to understand how they feel and how they're being impacted as well. Because we're already living in that future, right? We talk about, oh, years from now. No, every day matters. I mean, we've had an opportunity to see how climate change was an issue. Three years ago, when I first exclusively started working on environment, I couldn't even get a meeting with an elected official. Like nobody wanted to talk about it. They didn't see it as a dooming issue. But one of the unintended benefits of COVID was we can address things immediately. We can look at how things are affecting our communities. And again, our youth are the ones who really stood up to make sure that their voices were being heard because they recognize they actually want to see tomorrow. They actually want to see 
their future. So it's so important for us to include youth in everything that we do. What are some examples of some of the youth advocacy and action? Of course, having a seat at the table, and I loved the analogy you had of if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. But what can the youth do? I know that's a broad question, of course, have a voice and partake with policy. But like if students are looking to build an awareness campaign or do something mm-hmm. to address local food issues or local water issues or energy issues, like what are some examples of some youth in action case studies that might be useful for some of the youth that are trying to take action into their own hands? Yeah. Again, I'm super glad that you're asking that question because I took for granted that I needed to talk about that work. When I was the state organizer for the Moms Clean Air Force, we actually had a youth component. And I remember meeting a young woman who just followed me on Instagram, right? And she would message me and often tell me about you know, how excited and how much she was learning and what could she do. And so I started inviting her to meetings. She would come all the meetings I was attending and she was taking notes. And I'm so proud to say three years later, she's actually off on her own speaking. And I saw on Instagram the other day that she organized a rally at City Hall. And so she felt empowered, right? I gave her permission. Oftentimes, communities who are being underserved feel like they don't have permission. So again, giving and modeling the behavior for youth is critical because they do need tools for their toolkit to be effective. And so working with them helps do that. But yeah, there's so many, we have youth corps and different ambassador programs throughout the city of Houston to get them involved, not only in climate, but like in water and agriculture, all the things that are affecting communities. But anybody listening and you just, if you want to make that impact, there is a space, there is an opportunity to connect with some organization, to get free training, to be a part of the fabric of creating that change. You are full of these fire poster worthy quotes here. Be part of the fabric for that change. That really, really well said. And part of it too is is even just finding the access to the training and education to make yourself better. I was actually reading a book recently called be so good they can't ignore you. And the book title came from Steve Martin's quote when he was talking about trying to get better as a, an actor. And I think a lot of times, yes, we can use passion as this North Star, but sometimes passion's maybe a little bit ambiguous. But if you focus on just trying to honing your craft and getting better, there comes to a point where they can't ignore you. And so sometimes the best thing you can do is, is educate yourself and then right. and work to, when you're at the table, use that opportunity, speak up and have a voice. And I think that that's really inspiring to hear you say that. And, and I think we we're starting to work with more schools around the country that are, are, they're looking to do some more case studies and looking to do more kind of local contextual projects. But I think there's a lot of interest into Houston. And so I know you've got an organization yourself and it's, it's now February, 2022 and quite a bit's happening throughout our entire lives, but especially in the last two years or so. 
Could you share a little bit about your specific organization with Altruistic Endeavors and then kind of what are some of your goals and hopes and and maybe call for help from others in the rest of 2022? Yeah. So Altruistic Endeavors were really about preventing disasters. There are so many things that can be a disaster. Like I actually experienced COVID and couldn't work for almost a month, right? And so not being able to work because you're sick or you just got out of jail or you don't have water or you don't have food to eat, all of that can feel like a disaster. And so we're all about creating opportunities to build capacity in families and individuals to ensure that they don't have to get to that disaster. So we have urban farms and an apiary where we teach people uh, alternatives to unemployment, but we also provide fresh fruits and herbs and vegetables to the community and provide opportunities for them to learn through different trainings and by meeting people where they are and meeting those needs. That's really exciting. Into the part of like growing food and in the herbs, did, tell me a little bit about that. How how is that done? I mean, through some of the raised gardens and you know, where do you kind of get the equipment and, and how does the, the growing and distribution work and, and then what's what's been some of the success or examples of that in action? Yeah. We you we have a demonstration farm. On one side, we actually use recycled tools and recycle equipment. So for instance, we might take dresser drawers and turn them into raised beds or tires that you find on the street. So we try to focus on helping communities upcycle the trash that's in their area. You know, heavy heavy dumping is a serious issue for lots of communities, but how do we put those things back into commerce? And so turning them into garden resources can be critical because who knew that you could grow a life supply of potatoes in grow bags and the having potatoes you know you'll never have to grow hungry <laughs> but and then on the other side of our farm we have an organic demonstration where it's the perfect raised beds and it's you know so pristine but comparing the two, it essentially looks the same. And so again, it's about giving people the tools that they need in order to do it for themselves. Because and it is always amazing to watch even green onions, right? Like I, we do this class on just uh, how do you reuse the vegetables that you cook with at home and how when you cut them up, you can save them and they become your seeds. And now you never have to buy green onions again and, and that kind of thing. Even onions and garlic and all that. So just showing them, making them aware of the opportunity. And it's dirt therapy. When kids see it growing and, and they harvest it themselves, and when they plant the seeds one week and come back three weeks later and see this whole plant, that's exciting. And so they want to do it at home. And you don't need a lot of space. Actually, post partnered with one of the grocery stores here, and they they have this huge box 
that they give out when they do distribution. And it's interesting, this huge box only has one meal. And so I kind of challenged them because I was like, why don't you also give them a bag of dirt so that when they empty the box, that box can then become a raised bed. You don't even need a yard. You can put that on your porch or, you know, on your balcony, anywhere that you can get sun. And here you go. You've provided them with a tool so that they can create their own food. Dirt therapy. I think that's something we can all benefit from. I I now have a a garden myself and, and there is something rewarding about just using your hands to create something. Even it's as small as a potato or a green onion, but that shows that you can do something with your own hands. And for those areas that maybe have compromised soil, you still can have a garden and you still can grow nutritious foods locally. And that's one small piece of the puzzle, but showing that you actually can take action to grow food for yourself or or turn it into a community-led agricultural effort that's growing and selling or giving or selling some of the produce within the community. Um, So that's Great example. And what I really like too, you mentioned is getting crafty and upcycling. Um, so that's my challenge to everyone listening of you get creative. Think about what you can use in the whole mindset of one man's trash is another man's treasure. I mean, that's that's very true. And and I think you're you're showing that, Catherine, within your organization where it's not just, you know, it doesn't have to be super expensive. You actually can make a big difference from finding someone's trash and, and turning it into some sort of value. So I, I thank you for that guidance. And I wanted to Maybe close out with just a, a another general kind of question and and challenge from you of what's one question or challenge that you would like to give the listeners here and, and right now we definitely wanted to speak to speak to everyone but especially wanting to speak to the youth of what would you like to challenge the youth with and what's a question you want to leave them with here today I want to challenge the youth and the listening audience to seek to understand. You know, in this new millennium, it is so unfortunate that there's always an opposing side. You know, you can say the sky is blue and someone will come back and say, no, it's purple. Or that's not clouds, that's fog. We got to stop that. I want to challenge folks to figure out a way, how do we work together, seek to understand? We don't always have to be right. We have to get things done. And so, especially as youth become more passionate, challenging them not to take such hard positions, but seeking to see all sides and being willing to listen and seek understanding. Well said, Catherine. And then so true in that we we don't always have to be right. And it's more important about putting our egos to the side and acknowledging that to your earlier point earlier, compromise is not a bad thing. Compromise in some ways helps us get to a middle ground to allow us to get things done as opposed to just being angry and sitting on the sidelines and pointing fingers at one another. Yep. So I agree. Well, Catherine, on behalf of the SDG Talks community and everyone listening here today, we're really grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm excited to see what some of the students around the country are going to be working on with some of their student-led initiatives. And just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. And and I'm sure if if people want to learn more and get involved within the Houston community, we're going to make sure to put your links and everything, altruisticsendeavorsngo.org into the show notes. So 
Thank you again, Catherine. And I hope you have well, a great Thank you for the opportunity. You too. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from the show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. I look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.